This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. Buckle up for this episode because, well, it's a rocky ride. We've come to the Third Ecumenical Church Council, and for those of you who remember this one from Season 1, you know we're in for troubled times. We're looking at the Council of Ephesus in 431 and the battle between Cyril and Nestorius. The first council at Nicaea in 325 dealt with the challenge of Arianism and its goofy ideas about the deity of Christ. It produced the Nicene Creed, which became the standard statement of Orthodox Christianity. But Arians managed to finagle things around, and by a clever game of semantics, hung on to their core ideas while appearing Orthodox. The Nicene Creed's less-than-comprehensive statement about the deity of the Holy Spirit became their undoing when they claimed that the Spirit was merely a force or an influence, not a divine person co-equal and eternal with the Father and Son. So, another council was called in 381 at the eastern capital of Constantinople, where Arianism was finally outed as heretical, and the Nicene Creed was filled out to embrace a more comprehensive orthodox statement on the Holy Spirit. It was the language devised by the Cappadocian Fathers that was finally used to settle in on the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence, but three in person. Once the doctrine of the Trinity was conveyed in language that all could agree on, the next issue up for theological consideration was to how to understand Jesus. It's clear scripture says that he's both God and man. How then were people to understand that? Was he two persons or one? Did he have two natures or one? And if he had two natures, how did those natures relate to one another, since God and man are very different? That's the subject that was debated 50 years after Constantinople at the Council of Ephesus. There were actually three councils held at Ephesus, the first in 431, a second 18 years later, and a third in 475. But it's only the first in 431 that's reckoned as being one of the seven ecumenical councils. Now, as we get into this, it's good to know that the 23 years from 428 to 451, when the Council of Chalcedon met, is probably the most crucial period in the development of Christology. That is, that branch of theology dealing with the nature of Christ. Nicaea had made it clear that the orthodox position was that Jesus is both God and man. It said, quote, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man, unquote. The next question up after hammering out how to describe the Trinity was, how do we describe the God-man, Jesus? We've just said that he's God and man. How do those two natures interact and relate to each other in Jesus? How much of Jesus is God and how much is man? Does he have one mind or two, one soul or two, one will or two? Since God is bigger than man, maybe his divinity overwhelms his humanity. Or maybe Jesus sublimated his deity 
and lived solely as a human. Now, to many modern believers, all of this may seem abstract and too ethereal to worry about. That mentality can only exist precisely because theologians and church leaders of the 5th century wrestled with and settled the issue for us. Most Christians don't concern themselves with such lofty ponderings because they assume that smart guys figured all that out long ago and their formulas have ensured the success of the church's mission ever since. So, no need to go back and worry about all that. The smart guys have it covered. Well, keep in mind that there was a time when that formula didn't exist and the smart guys hadn't nailed down exactly how to understand and then say what they understood. One of their most difficult tasks was finding the exact right words by which to articulate what they come to understand the scripture said about Jesus. Today, we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is one person with two natures. These natures, while different, aren't in competition with each other, nor are they mixed into some kind of hybrid that merges the human and the divine. Before the Incarnation, Jesus had one nature as God, but Jesus took on humanity in the Incarnation, and as Philippians chapter 2 says, he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. Now, exactly what that means? Well, theologians and Bible teachers have wrestled with for hundreds of years. But from the way that the Apostle Paul describes it there, we get the sense that Jesus, while fully God, chose to live primarily out of his nature and identity as man, so that being found in a mortal body, he fully experienced the reality of humanity and was in all points tempted just as we are, yet without sin. So, he was no less God in the Incarnation, but he chose not to live his life on earth from that nature. And then after his ascension back to heaven, he kept his humanity so that today, a God-man sits on the right hand of the Father in glory forevermore. But, and here's the point, we can state that with great confidence today only because there were people in the 4th and 5th centuries who labored over it for decades to understand it and then to put it in just the right words that could state it without misrepresenting who and what Jesus is. The Council of Ephesus was crucial a major milestone in that development. The council was the result of a clash between two schools of thought on how best to understand the dual nature of Jesus. Both sides believed that Jesus was one person with two natures, but they differed widely in how they understood and stated it. One side so strongly emphasized his dual nature, it at times sounded as though they advocated not just two natures, but two persons. And the other side so emphasized Jesus' unity that it seemed at times to say that while he technically had two natures, the divine so overshadowed the human that it reigned supreme and relegated the human nature of Jesus to a kind of, well, spiritual coma. Sadly, the council at Ephesus was such a mess and so fraught with turmoil that while it took pains to crush the idea that Jesus was two natures and two persons, it never really made clear how his two natures existed in one person. And that's why the Council of Chalcedon was called just 20 years later. The church realized that Ephesus needed to be followed up by a council that would tighten up its Christology, 
and to wash the bitter taste from its mouth due to all the wrangling at Ephesus. J.D. Kelly writes of the Council of Ephesus, quote, At no phase in the evolution of the church's theology have the fundamental issues been so mixed up with the clash of politics and personalities, unquote. The story of the Council of Ephesus revolves around two individuals, Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius of Constantinople. But before we can get into them, we need to back up a bit and talk about church politics. Wait, what? Church politics? Is there such a thing? Sadly, yes, all too often. It's the result of involving people. Now, I know that there are those of you who subscribe to Communio Sanctorum who've been shocked and appalled by some of the sad chapters in church history. I know that because you've written in to share your unease. You see, we have this idea of the early church that it was all love and light. You know those early chapters of the book of Acts? They loved each other. They had all things in common. Kumbaya. But don't forget those other passages even earlier in the Gospels. <laughs> when the disciples argued among each other over who was the greatest. Jesus had to set them straight on that account more than once. And then in the book of Acts, we read that even the great Paul had a falling out with Barnabas over how to conduct one of their missionary journeys. Acts chapter 15 records the real first church council in Jerusalem when church leaders argued over what was to be done with all of these new Gentile converts. And even with them deciding what to do, well, there were people who didn't like the decision and continued doing their own thing, causing Paul a massive headache later. No, regrettably, there's always been a measure of politics in the church. It may be at the Council of Ephesus that the reality of that becomes obvious for the first time. As we saw in season one, in the first centuries of the church, just a few churches rose to exert a huge influence over the regions around them. Jerusalem was, of course, considered the headquarters at first. Antioch in Syria became a regional center, as well as the church in Alexandria. And it's understandable why they would. Alexandria was the Roman Empire's second largest city, while Antioch was the third, and by far the largest city of that entire area. Alexandria wasn't just a large city, it had a long reputation of going back many generations as a center of scholarship, bolstered, of course, by its world-famous library. To these three centers, Rome was quickly added as a fourth. Then later, when the official capital of the empire was shifted east by Constantine to Constantinople, that city's church became important due to its proximity to the imperial court. But Constantinople's rise coincided with Jerusalem's decline. There really just wasn't anyone left in the leadership of Jerusalem's church that was recognized as carrying the mantle of the apostles. That mantle now rested in Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, and Constantinople. And two power axes developed, one between the old capital of Rome and the new Rome, the new capital in Constantine's city. The other axis was between Antioch and Alexandria. The thing is, Rome was way off in the west and selected its own leaders without meddling on the part of the other churches. But in the east, well, it was a much different matter. The Church of Constantinople simply didn't have the theological legacy and heritage to develop mature leaders of its own. 
and so it picked its patriarchs alternately from the older works at Antioch and Alexandria. And, of course, whichever church had supplied the capital church with its leader had bragging rights and the ear of the emperor and his court. The problem was, while Alexandria was supposed to have superior academics and a more refined theological mojo, Constantinople often selected as its patriarch someone from Antioch. And as far as the Alexandrian church was concerned, well, that dog just ain't gonna hunt. Have you ever heard the term Byzantine? I'm not referring to an era of history. I mean the adjective that speaks of something that's hopelessly tangled and complex. It's often used to describe a bureaucracy that's so elaborate and convoluted, negotiating it is a Herculean task. That phrase comes from the royal court at Constantinople, the city whose original name was Byzantium. While the emperor lived in ostentatious style in his palace, he surrounded himself with layers of bureaucracy to make the Sun King Louis XIV's Versailles look like a one-act play. What that meant to the church in Constantinople was that there were factions at court always vying with each other for power. Since church and state were hand-in-hand, the patriarchate of the church was a political football because whoever was the leader of the church had massive influence on imperial policy. History tells us there were times when the emperor wanted one patriarch while factions at his court, even members of his own family, wanted another. All of that now plays into the Council of Ephesus. And like a serial episode of a television story that ends each week in a cliffhanger, we're going to end this episode here, just a step away from what ends up being a bloody debate and brawl that was the Council of Ephesus. I again want to thank all those of you that have gone to the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and given us a like, left a comment there letting us know where you're listening from. And also for all those of you that have gone on to the iTunes store and rated the podcast there, thank you so much for that. That is probably the number one way to get out the word about Communio Sanctorum is through iTunes and reviews that are left there. So thank you very much. (laughs) 